Well, uh, I have I have my old friend John Willis back. Uh, there's all sorts of things uh, to, to to go over. He's always uh, hanging out, uh, writing a lot of books. I, I saw one of your most recent talks at a networking conference, and I think one of the, one of the best John Willis jokes ever was: I think he ha- has written more books than he is old. Uh, essentially, is, oh. is is what you have. That's that's a race right there, man. <laughs> but I, you know, in thinking about all the various things we could talk about. Uh, you know, you, you've, I, I, as I was thinking about the various questions, the, the one that kept coming to the top of my list was one that you've been involved in a lot and I've been involved in a lot. And so here's like, I have been thinking a lot over the last couple of years and by a lot, you know, it's probably only eight hours of a whole year. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I got other stuff going on. <laughs> what else do you think about? <laughs> but frequently... I, I, and I've even written about this, but I asked this question of like, how did Kubernetes win? Right. And the setup for that is like, you know, if you try, so when I look at it, uh, it, it compared to everything else that was going on in the three or four years as it was kind of gestating and then kind of came onto the scene, it was like, it was like underpowered, uh, like had less functionality to it. And like, didn't have actual enterprise customer users. And like, it was also like technically inferior as far as capabilities. And like, overall, it was like kind of goofy, uh, like compared to all these other things, all these other container orchestrators. Now, obviously I have some bias here because I'm from the cloud foundry world, but you know, and then you worked at Docker. And uh, also canonical, like like all these other, and then we were both at Dell. Like there were all these other major forces of like that already had an install base, especially Docker of container things, but also like Mesosphere and on and on and on. And then like, and I've I've watched the Kubernetes documentary twice, uh, all all two episodes, which is great. I recommend it to everyone. But it's almost like uh, I'll get to the question mark eventually, John. Uh, but like, you know, you watch that documentary and the original goal of Kubernetes was just like, we got to go kick sand in AWS's face. It wasn't really like that much. And then even, I mean, th- this is since then, it's like its own big gigantic. This is the 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 uh, the glory of winning is like uh, one of my favorite sports things. What is it? Uh, it? Success is the best deodorant. Like now everything's fine. But like... Yeah. Uh, even if you kind of look at the core of Kubernetes, it's just actually this thin layer and you still need all the code that does the stuff. It's kind of like the, uh, yeah. it's like the, the, the automation software in the first round of DevOps where like you keep pulling and pulling and you're like, oh, I still am uh, FTPing some files. I see, right? Like, and so it's just this, li- I mean, they even call it an API, which drives me fucking bananas as an application developer. That's not what an <laughs> API is, but that's fine. Like... Uh, but you know, really, it's, it's an API for non people who don't know how to. Play yes, it. yes. I, I mean, I mean, I'm put I'm putting this in an extreme thing to kind of ratchet this up, but like it's an API, like basically like um, the the LS command. Yeah, it's API. like it's like calling it's yeah. like calling the Windows three one dot ini file an API. Like <laughs> that's, that's that, that. And and you always and, and funny jokes. So and ahead. and then and then so finally, it's like and. Even today, but even from the beginning, self-admittedly, it was way too complicated for mere mortals to use. Like the, the original book wasn't called Kubernetes the easy way. 
It was called Kubernetes the hard way. And the subtitle should have been like, because there is no easy way. And still people complain about like its complexity. And then you have the old, you know, one of the most fam- famous it. Kubernetes things ever is like, oh, it's a platform for building platforms. And, and you're like, well, then why are you marketing to all these application developers or at least letting them be into it? So, John, you lived through this all right, here we- in many different areas. Uh, well, in, in the same ballpark, but from different vantage points and positions. Like, uh, how did this, how did Kubernetes win? Because we need to apply it to the next thing. I don't even know where to start now, but I, I guess I'll start somewhere in the middle. You know, um, I've never watched that documentary because it would be too gall darn painful to watch. <laughs> Right. And, and, and I could go into how my Docker stocks got turned from about 5 million into like a hundred dollars. I could go into like So there's a lot of stories I could tell you of why I will probably never watch that documentary. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, well, as, as, as someone um, once said, I feel your pain. So, you know, <laughs> it, yeah, it's a tale as old as time, Michael. It's uh, you know, I mean, like, how do I say this? Like, why is Taylor Swift? probably the, the 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 world's most famous not even now now i think they're comparing them like okay taylor swift here beatles here rolling stones here i mean like okay and i i'm not talking about the political stuff right i'm just saying that like things happen and they just sort of work their way through this swiss cheese model and they may not be the best i mean there's probably there i know there's billions of you know eight-year-olds that think Taylor Swift is, you know, whatever her album is, is as good as Sgt. Pepper's Only Heart Clubs. But, but it's not, sorry. And you're right, Kubernetes was not the perfect choice. In fact, you know, I, you know again, if, you know, like, if I can take off my, you know, I'm pretty pissed off at the Docker folk, um, the um, Swarm was the whole point of Swarm. You know, if you can remember, um, I remember when we uh, when they when the development was created for Swarm, which is another whole crazy story. I like don't want to turn this into the history of Docker, but um, nobody knew, even inside of Docker. Uh, all right, I better be careful here. All right, let's just say when Swarm was designed to be Solomon gets on stage. This is public when we announced the combination of the Docker. Engine and Swarm being put together. Solomon gets up there, and these are these sort of Mary Kay cosmetic moments. He gets on the stage and he says, we didn't create containers, but we made them better and easier to use. We didn't create orchestration, but now we're making it better and easier. And this is after Kubernetes was already sorted out. And the point was that Docker didn't create containers, but you had to be a rocket scientist to create containers before Docker. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't create orchestration, but to get Kubernetes to work even now, I think is like way overwhelming for any normal human sysadmin. You know, I work in a bank. I, you know, I, I do this, I do that. I write some code sometimes, but my code is not Java. It's, it's Bash shell script or it's uh, Python or it's Ruby. Um you know, and you and they say, well, you know, hey, if you really, you know, the Google folk come in and say that looks pretty cool. No, it doesn't. But um, 
if you really want to get that thing, you got to create an operator. Oh, what's an operator? Oh, let me tell you about the event loop that happens here. Yeah, I mean, like, what? You know, you know, you got to create, you know, like, and, and, you know, so, all right. So the point is, I don't know why Kubernetes won. I guess there was a vacuum. Um, there was, you know, there was a need for, you know, the, the, the logic behind what, um, you know, what, what Google did. You know, the other problem I have, you know, people talk about like, you know, platform. If you look at the history of, you know, Mark Burgess wrote the forward to the first SRE book, right? And, and I had a great conversation about like this, it wasn't recorded, but the history of like this stuff, like even SRE, right? Like people are like, got to do SRE. Why? I don't know. I've got to do SRE. And, and again, I'm a fan of SRE, but, but the, the reason you had what we have today, SRE and, and, and Kubernetes and all this stuff, is Google had a problem early. And, 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 and Mark Berger said this brilliant thing to me. He said, he goes, the thing that he, he, he argues that he never said brilliant, but um, he said the brilliance of Google was as they were growing incredibly fast, right? Like they, they had this sort of this, um, you know, tiger that they had built that was untamable in the early days. They, they realized they had to make a sort of a non-deterministic world. The scale side of their infrastructure look deterministic to the developers, right? Like it wasn't going to work if the developers had to keep up with all of the crazy stuff they were doing with, you know, distributed computing. You know, I, you know, I know people argue about cap theorem and whatever, but the point was if they had to stay on par, they would have never got all those things. So what they do, they built this beautiful abstraction. They originally called it the Borg, right? Um, then they turned it into Omega. And then magically they decided to open source that complexity to the world. But the point was they wanted the developers to write sort of simplistic, like BigQuery. And they even gave them fancy names, right? And so they built this beautiful abstraction. And then they created this concept of SRE because of this. And why did all that exist? Because they were at a scale 15 years ago that even your largest banks weren't even getting close to. So they needed this. So by the time they introduced this, nobody has the scale problem that that Google even had 10 years earlier, let alone by the time they open source Kubernetes. And then you feel, well, you know, and, and by the way, all of it made sense. And then I'll add one more ingredient, which is... Docker was a brilliant concept, right? Being able to take that internal idea that only the unicorns were using. And, and, and to, to Solomon Hikes' credit, he commoditized it so all of us horses could actually use containers. But, the, but then the brick wall you ran into with containers is how do you manage more than 10 of them? <laughs> you know? and, and so there was this incredible inflection point of like, oh, there is a platform. And you you know, you had mentioned Mesosphere, right? Well, why didn't Mesosphere win? Because Mesosphere was one of the things that Mesosphere was was very interesting is it was A, it was catered to operations and infrastructure people, which Kubernetes never was. And 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 and, and they sold, because I was a docker, you know, we were sell, trying to sell to like, you know, uh, Andrew Schaefer had one of the greatest Docker quotes ever. He said that Docker will become the PDF of containers, right? 
Like their idea was if we could give a billion copies of Docker, we will win. Mesosphere at the time was, you know, doing really well because they were selling infrastructure to operations and infrastructure people, and they catered their product to work with operations. You said earlier, you know, like what an API means to a developer is completely different to what an API, and that's changing now because I would say operations and development, operations infrastructure are way more intelligent now than they were five years ago or 10 years ago. But but you, that point you made is salient. And, and so, but I don't know why, you know, like, but and then it goes back to bad founders, bad leaders, bad decisions. You know, rumors were that Mesosphere was offered a shitload of money for uh, to get bought by Microsoft. They turned them down. You know, you know, so um, you got, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't want to all the way jump to Sam Altman, but we got the inmates have been running the asylum for at least 15 years. <laughs> sure. We got the question why we keep innovating inside the asylum. Maybe we should uh, move, move innovation that elsewhere. Is, that is, <laughs> is why do we let the sort of asylum, right? You know, like, like when the CIOs, like, I mean, I saw a presentation once, you, you know, you talked earlier, I did some, I saw the, I saw the networking company, Docker, right? It's called Soccer Plane. And um, and I remember when I was first getting into, like, trying to understand networking, I started going to all these large networking groups. And, and the CTO Citibank gets up there. And in, um, and in the first three slides, he says, we need to be more like Google, you know, and, you know, that I've got to change the mindset inside of Citibank. And then eight slides later, he, later, he says, we need to do more with less. So I go up to him at the end. I'm like, excuse me, sir. Can I have, you know, I'm like Oliver asking for more porridge. I'm like, but I figured I got to say this to him. I said, you do know these companies don't live by the do more with less. They live by the do more with more. They pay their developers insane amount of money. They, you know, they, you know, you know, uh, and, you know, and like, so, I mean, that like, they were all sort of like, they, 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 you know, what, what did they do? They, they, the Pied Piper thing. Anyway, yeah, I'm going crazy here, but like, that was the worst first question you could ask. Well, I, th- I think, I think, you know, what you were just saying gets to, uh, a, a, a probably good, uh, what's the word? Hypothesis of, of the Kubernetes success, which is if it hadn't been Google doing it, it wouldn't have worked. Because 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 well, it, no well, one would have said, oh, we need to uh, we need to run like ask dot com, right? Like it had it had to be like the the engineering uh, like prowess. I, I like I can't think of an analog to the pre computer era. I mean, oddly enough, IBM is probably yeah, one. Well, but- I mean, I, I can use a, 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 a safety like it was one of those in a in well i could argue not a positive way but like if you've ever you know i study a little bit about you know sort of um um you know resilience and the thing that Sidney decker and and john Osbar, but the air france 447 is this convergence of in mm. crazy amount of things if any one of them doesn't happen you don't have that plane crash right but but like one of the major ingredients to Kubernetes success, which was, and I remember uh, one of the Kubernetes developer at a conference come up to me and while I was at Docker and say, you know, he's thanking me. I'm like, no, you don't thank me. Like, I'm just tagging along. But, but uh, he's like, thank you. He's like, you know, we had all this work that in, in sort of this container way, but there was no way people were going to understand how to use it. And Docker taught the world. Mm-hmm how to use it. 
Right, right. Right? You know, and, and, and you know, so you have this without Docker. The Docker is this Google gift that's like, oh, now we now we don't have to, like, spend, like, five years explaining to people why this is a better way to do computing. Right, right. And, you know, so so yeah. that that's evolving the idea. So, like, one, uh, I think a pretty good, like, like uh, one leg of a three-legged stool. We'll see if we can come up with three legs. Otherwise, it's a little wobbly. You know... Side note: It's probably better to have a one a one legged stool than a two legged stool, right? Wouldn't you like because you could balance a one legged stool, but a two legged stool, I feel like, is always going to be a little weird to figure out what you should be doing. Mark Burgess is a four legged stool. Me and you are three legged stools, yeah. and unfortunately, there are a lot of fools that are two legged. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's just the sheer brand value of Google, right? Which is like we all we all talk about it and. You know, maybe it's not difficult to acknowledge at all, but like technology choices in the software development and infrastructure space are very fashion driven, right? Like it's just as affected as, mm-hmm. as much by fashion as as anything. Totally. Uh, so yeah. like having that value is valuable. It's like you got the right people using the Stanley Cups and all of a sudden you're awesome. Uh, and so like, so you have that, right? So that's necessary. And then, you know, you're introducing another thing which which connects with your uh, with your bank person in an odd way but then also the other stuff is it's almost like you have to make it free right like like and it has to be free in the sense of like it's easy to understand but then also it's it's easy to use but then also you don't really have to the users don't have to pay for anything nor ask to pay for anything and so you pull that together with docker where you don't have to pay for anything until very recently when they were like, hey, that'd be cool if you had to pay for something. And then what do you know? They make a ton of money. Uh, but like you, uh, you basically have this confluence. It's, it's, it's kind of the curse, not, not the curse, but like I think it's what, what's confounding to normal businesses, as you were kind of pointing out about that, that, uh, that bank executive is like, well, if you want to be like Google, you need to have like 15 to $20 of billion billion profit each quarter that you just invest oh. i mean like, yeah, which maybe a bank has that much but it's sort of well, it's a, it's a fatal flaw in their logic sorry because i'll forget the I, I cut people off because then i know i'll forget my the, the point i'm gonna make the, you know, the fatal flaw is when you have these conversations and i've had these conversations recently as a couple of years they all want to be like google right and, and the thing is they know google does something different than they do right uh-huh. and and but they don't want to like don't give me the, the, don't bother me with the facts, son. Um, you know, like I'll give a great example. Um, you know, you're, you're paying, um, you know, you're a big, large corporation and you're paying, you know, I don't know, 50, 100, 200 million, 300 million for Oracle business logic. And some person internal says, you know, I think we can replace a ton of that with Kafka. Oh, it's just Kafka stuff. Okay, great, great. And then you start, like, you know, it starts growing in little weeds, and you're still not replacing large enterprise license contracts with Oracle yet. But 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 it's starting to grow, and then, like, hey, how'd you get rid of all that code? Oh, we're using this thing called Kafka. Oh, that's great. And then it gets a little more and more, and now it's all starting, it's starting to get on the radar of, like, where are you running Kafka at this business? And then all of a sudden, somebody comes to the conclusion that, you know, we probably need to get a committer, a Kafka committer mm. here in this company 
And like, yeah, what you because now we can be in control of this project or not control, but like have like direct influence. So when there's a bug and all this stuff, whatever we can do. And so then you go out and you find somebody's in Silicon Valley is making, you know, 500 grand a year. Right. And you bring them in and who do they meet first? HR. And HR is like, do you do Java? Well, I can do Java. Well, our Java developers, the peak salary for a Java developer is 150000 a year. And we don't see any way. And then like, yeah, but it's, I, mean, I don't see the but. Our Java people are the most, the best. We use this service that provides us the best Java folk in the world. And literally the whole thing gets kiboshed because they can't find a band. Right, right. You know, sort of an HR band. You know, I remember when when I had I, I worked for a company that got acquired by Dell, right? And then the the HR person was explaining me the file cabinet concept for all my employees who work for me, and how John think about it as a file cabinet, and each level is a little folder, and you got to figure out where your people fit in that folder, and those folders have ranges of salaries, and like so right off the bat. The deal's dead. You don't get the Kafka committer. Right. Because the Kafka committer is going to make a half million dollars putting their finger in the air. And and actually more than that these days. But um, And HR is an immovable object of, sorry, you know, if they've got this many years experience, they live in this city, and they and we'll put them in this category, they can only make $150,000. Sure. That, that, you know, it. So how do you you sit there at the executive level and scream and holler like we need to be more like Google and you don't even I you know I've done things where I've gone into to large banks I you know quali- I call it sort of qualitative analysis for digital you know, uh, digital transformation just try to give it a fancy name but what I do is I use some qualitative analysis techniques that Jay Bloom brilliant man taught me and I basically interview hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and you try to surface, like, here's the disconnect, CIO. Like, this is the disconnect right here. And they throw it in the trash. They pay me like 200, 300 grand to do the report. And I, I, I like that. I like that. Ooh, I don't like that. You know, so, so yeah, I want to be like Google. I want to be like Amazon. Well, I'm sorry, dude. You know, woman, man, you have to basically pony up the stuff that they do. And if you're just going to put, you know, blinkers on and not sort of try to understand, you know, you could just verbalize it to Wall Street all day long, but it's not going to work unless you sort of, and and then you and I both know changing an institutionalized institution is almost impossible. Right, right. Especially if it's not built into the the way that they operate, which, you know, I I think, I think that, that does, hmm. Well, one thing you were going over there, it was also, it was making me think that, Don't that's think. Right, that, that there's, there's not enough uh, time spent on the theory of like the viral spread of technology inside of enterprises. And, and like, because, you know, viral spreading is supposed to happen for consumer stuff and people dancing in videos and stuff like that. Yeah. But what you were describing there was like one group uses, in your example, Kafka, then they have some success and someone else hears about it and they're like, oh, what's going on over there? And then they want to use it. 
And then the thing almost morphs into just like, this is, uh, this is like a big glowing ball of success. I want some of that. And like, you're figuring out how to, how to, um, uh, apply that to, to you, which I think is, it helps out if you have like open source software, which is freely available, right. That you can kind of use. And, and, you know, the other part of open source software that I guess I don't think about enough in this kind of context is not only is the software freely available, but getting help for getting it installed is usually also freely available, right? Like you don't have to call in the sales engineer to get it hooked up to work on your system. So well, people will document it. Commander, right? It's all going to work great. But if you're not willing to pay the money to get a seat at the table on the project, then that the, the brick wall is, I mean, the, the beauty of open sources we both know is you don't have to wait six months for a vendor to say, well, it's really not on a roadmap, but we'll think about it. Or if you pay us like $8 billion, we'll, I mean, I'm exaggerating, we'll put it at the top of the, the, the queue. Um, the, the thing about open source is most often, like you don't even have to write the code. You can put in an issue and the, the, the millions of people who follow the project will probably solve the problem for you. But the point being is you'll never get to the top of the queue. You can get to the top of the queue quicker there, but you'll like, you will be somebody in the decision-making process at the top of the queue. If you can get HR to throw away their stupid ban system <laughs> and tell the person you want to hire, but, but you, you're, you're really ban. scarred by that file cabinet. I think it left a, when it fell on top of you, I think it, it left a dent. I mean, I'll tell you stories. I can, <laughs> you know, like a friend of mine who was working for me, who I doubled his salary when he came to work for me because the company before we sold to Dell and he was still, if he was willing to leave Roswell, um, Georgia, and go to California, he would have made about four times the amount of money he made. So I made sure he made at least half the amount of money he should have made. And I, the, the HR people at said company told me he was making too much money for somebody who lived in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, like but anyway, I want to go back to something that I, I, I think it's a segue to my book, Deming's Journey to Profound Knowledge, which is one of the core philosophies of Dr. Deming was trying to get an organization, and he didn't, he called it um, an appreciation for a system, but it was systems thinking. And he grew up, you know, he grew up, you know, like he was, you know, pre-war, during the war. I mean, Deming worked with, during the war in a top secret project with Norbert Wiener, Herbert Simon, uh, Claude Shannon, they were all in this, like, think. You, we hear about the Manhattan Project. There was another project going on that was doing missile ballistics and stuff. And so he was as sound in principle about system thinking as anybody you can hear about today. And the thing that, like, if he was to come into an organization, in fact, when organizations would, would call him, he would tell if the CEO didn't agree to working on the project, he would literally hang up on the, uh, there's a famous story where Ford, the, the, um, Donald Peterson, the CEO of Ford saw Deming's documentary or documented. It included Deming that basically was this thing about if Japan can, why can't we? It was like the early eighties, right? Yeah. Right. And I did. And, and Ford and Donald Peterson, he's just, holy crap. Like we need to bring this guy in. 
And now I'm going to use a little bit of literary license, but it's not too far. So Peterson calls Deming. And you got to remember, Deming at this point, nobody in America knows who he is. He works in his basement. In fact, Japanese executives would go to Detroit. On the way back, they'd do a stopover in D.C., and they couldn't understand how in Detroit these idiots had, like, walnut desks and, like, you know, art deco offices. And Deming's working in the basement where his wife is periodically saying, honey, don't make any calls right now. The washing machine is going to be working. And these, and these Japanese executives were like, boy, Americans are really stupid. Those idiots in Detroit have, you know, walnut desks and like million dollar offices. And this brilliant guy here that we want to always make sure we stop before we go back to Japan really works in a basement that he shares with his washer and dryer. But anyway, so Donald Peterson calls Dr. Deming. This is in my book. Dr. Deming, after he sees the documentary, and he realizes, oh, man, like, we need to get this guy in here. So Deming says, okay, that's great, you know. He says, but me and you are going to have to work closely. And Peterson's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm the CEO. I'm going to get you the right guys. And if you and if they don't work, and he's, well, he hangs up on him Again, a little bit of a little ISIS, but, like, this is what he would do. And Peterson would call back, like, dude, don't hang up on me. I'm like, okay. We're going to have to work together. But you don't understand, Mr. Deming. We can't. I'm the CEO of Ford Motors. Ding. You know, then the third time, like, please don't hang up on me. And then at that point, he would agree to work with him. And Deming wouldn't work with an organization, no matter how big they were. And this is my point about systems thinking. If we go back to a modern company right now, and you know, if Deming was to go in there and he saw this nonsense, if he and I, I my last third of my book is like, what would Deming do now with cyber, with DevOps, and all this stuff? So I mean, if this interests you, buy my book. But but the point is, Deming probably would uncover this Kafka HR problem. Why? Because he would institutionalize systems thinking in an organization, and he would force the CEO to understand the concept of what he called an appreciation for a system. And he would start looking at like these problems. Oh, you want to be like Google? Let me, like he pops up. He's been dead for like 40 years. He wakes up. Let me quickly find out what Google's doing. Oh, I get it. Okay. And then, you know, and then he'd say, well, this, this Google thing, they work a little different than you. And like he'd force them and he would teach them. And people would complain, you know, there's some anti-Deming people like, well, he never managed anything. He didn't have to manage people. He taught managers how to manage. And and I think, you know, he would, you know, in a, like I'm using a lot of license here, but he would at least try to get them to understand that this is a system. If you read any of his books, New Economics or Out of Crisis, he uses a lot of examples from the 70s of companies that would, you know, just like did the wacky stuff, right? Had lowest bitter cafeterias. And we're concerned why people went out to lunch and didn't use the cafeteria, <laughs> right? Like, it's the same thing. Well, well like, like so, so, it's, so th this is this is uh, uh, this brings up another thing I've been thinking about recently. Let me let me start with with the most concrete way I can think about it because I think the cafeteria example is good. Going all the way up to like your point, I think your point about the CEO and. Well, well, to summarize, one of the points I think about the the, C, the Ford CEO is like, if if you own the system or you're responsible for it, whatever language you want to use, right? Like if you're if you're the buck stop here stops here person for the system, uh, and you want to improve the system, you should really come to the workshops because you're part of the system, 
<laughs> right? Like unless unless you're involved in the improvement, it's all just not very relevant. And you're also going to lose fidelity of of your staff and their staff and their staff communicating these changes up to you. And it's sort of like, sure, you're busy because you got to do whatever. But like, isn't this your job? Right. Like and and so one example of that, you know, coming from, you know, speaking of another department, the other the other I, th- I think I think. As maligned as they are, I think the H.R. department is understandable. <laughs> we we may not agree with what, what they do, but it's just like I, I see what's going on. It you know, it's understandable. But then you go over to the finance department and their actions can seem incomprehensible. And part of the incomprehensible things that, that, and again, this is, I, I was, I was, I was talking about, uh, see, when we publish this, this will be last week's episode or, or whatever. But I was saying like, you know, in marketing, if you were to do 20 different marketing projects and only two of them were successful, you would say the other 18 were failures and they had terrible ROI and you shouldn't have done them. But in reality, since I've worked in marketing for so long, what, what, what you're saying is that like uh, we want to take a chance. We, we, we want to take a chance that uh, 90% of the time we're going to be wrong. Like I'm messing this up, but like if you, if you only chose two things to do and you didn't try all those other 18 things, like you're going to have a 10% success rate. And so really from a financial perspective, all of the money you spent on all 20 of those projects is like part of the entire system of those two being successful. So like if you're sure. if you're trying to cut back if you're like it would be better if we had workers here uh so they didn't spend all the time uh, the this is why here. Toyota was so incredibly successful Toyota production systems like like in you know and um I mean I can go on and on about Deming's you know like you learn from failure and if you sort of if, you know it's sort of again this is, goes back to sort of an eastern versus western sort of management styles, right? And Deming sort of learned a lot when he went over to Japan. I mean, he brought a lot with him. But the idea is that they understand the, the magic and the beauty of failure. And what is, and it's not even failure. It's, you know, Steven Spear in his, uh, Steven Spear, who wrote High Velocity Edge, and now he has wiring the winning organization with Gene Kim. Um, the you know he when he got his PhD in studying Toyota production systems and it's some he he it was it's supposedly it's the most downloaded HBR article like uh, decoding the Toyota production DNA and something like that and in there he makes this sort of quote and I've I've used it in a little bit variant of the way he said it but it's the same intent which is Toyota was a community of scientists continually experimenting. And what he didn't mean was they were scientists. It means that everybody in that organization thought like a scientist. And, you know, and Deming called this plan, do, study, act. Mike Rothschild calls it improvement kata. If you want to read a great book, it's called uh, Toyota Kata. Um, the, what you learn in eighth grade is what is called scientific method, right? And, and what, what this, this type of thinking there is failure is just the output of an experiment. And too many organizations just say, we will not accept failure. Failure cannot happen here. And that's not, you know, we go back to the, um, the scientific revolution, you know, um, Francis Bacon and like, I don't know, they were crazy, but like enlightenment, learning, 
um, improvement kata from Rother, um, what what Deming calls um, theory of knowledge, um, could be equated to epistemology, is all centered around creating experiments where you learn did it work or didn't work, and didn't work is actually a good thing, because now you know that you need to re-experiment, and like so many, you know, sort of Western corporations you know, going back from Lily Sloan or even Taylor are so institutionalized on this idea of productivity. You can't fail. Failure is a bad thing. Eliminate as many failures as you can, as opposed to, you know, the the idea of experimentation, accept failure, and it allows to learn and so that, like, you know, um, you know, there's a there's a great quote. Um, it was when Toyota built a plant in Kentucky, and um, in the in in the, there was a journalist that went and interviewed sort of the plant, and and one of the questions that they had asked the, you know, this is when Toyota was like Toyota had already done the Numi thing and learned from that, went back, came back at a roar, started opening up plants in America. They opened up one of their famous. Uh, plants in Kentucky, and this journalist was asking the plant manager, how do you create 2,000 cars a day? That's amazing. And his answer was, oh, that's easy. We pull the andon cord 5,000 times a day. And if you know what the andon cord is, it was the power of a worker to, you know, not necessarily stop the line, but sort of they had a window of like you had basically, you know, at the end of the day, it could stop the line because they weren't going to let something, a, a mistake, go any further than this station. And the point was that the reason why they were able to create 2,000 cars a day is because they failed 5,000 times a day. Right, right. And like be able to, to – like today when we try to shake as much as we try to do the DevOps thing and walk into executives and – and try to tell them, like, I know you want to change, but, like, the, the fundamental change you have to do is you have to say, stop saying failure is not an option. So so if we if we look at, like, a whole other... Am I making sense? I'm wondering right now you know, if anybody's listening. Well, well there, there's... There's a whole other line of questioning, which I'm trying to avoid going down because I'm curious about my, my the, the other question I have. But there's a line of questioning that's basically, like, maybe at the end we'll get to this, is, like, how do you keep being a thought leader when all of your work is just directly put into the trash can, <laughs> right? Which, which is kind of like to, 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 and then, and then up from there is sort of like, you know, uh, not only is it's not only improvement, but just functioning well, like is lubricated by learning, right? Like by adapting and like pulling the cord and figuring out what's going wrong, but especially if you want to improve and change and be growth focused instead of just kind of like, getting your marginal, uh, you know, your marginal profit out of functioning better by doing the same thing. Like it's not even, I used to, I used to, I was frequently told to not say as to use the word as you were using failure. Uh, and, and I was, you know, I like to be hyperbolic. So I always thought like, well, I'm just going to keep using it. But maybe there was something to that sentiment of like, it's because when you and I say failure, what we mean is like learning research experience and even like with my marketing thing, just doing the job, <laughs> right? Like, like, 
Whereas if maybe if we preserve failure as like, no, that was obviously a bad idea and it shouldn't have been done. Like maybe that's what failure is. Like, like if I don't. Well, I think it's better, it's better than that. Or not, it is great try, you know, great try. You experiment. Right, right, you right. did it early. It, 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 you know, I, I don't think, you know, like when you, I, I, I haven't done this or in a long time, but I think if you look at failure, it doesn't like it, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like it, it's, you know, uh, the, again, when you attach that to, um, you know, a scientific method, you know, like if we ever cure cancer, there will be a trillion attempts at failing. Right. By the time we do it. Well, you know, it's, right? it's like, so one, of, one of my, uh, uh, you remember our, my old friend, Charles of the drunken retired podcast. I think mm-hmm. every, every now and yeah, then the podcast you would never invite me on, but go yes, ahead. Yeah. Right. <laughs> when, uh, back when he was trying to start his own consulting firm, which has been going on now for like 20 years or so, people would always ask, okay. people would ask me like, why is he doing that when he could go like, you know, just be a programmer seems really stressful. And I would always say like, well, it's only stupid until it works. Right. Like, like, it's just like you spend all of this time, like learning or whatever, and then it's just successful and no one really cares about all the quote unquote failure that you had. It was just like, oh, well, of course they had to do all of that. Right. And so the, the, you know, using your, your extensive dimming knowledge, your lore and your ability to, uh, uh, channel potential thinking, you, you're kind of like, you're kind of like your own chat GPT of, of dimming maybe, yeah. but like, one industry that I think does. Oh, Michael Cote, what would you like me to tell you? Today? <laughs> exactly. What one industry that does seem to embrace this, like, let's fail a lot that, that you have a lot of firsthand experience with is like venture capital. And like, they don't talk about it. Like our job is to fail a lot and succeed once. Although they pretty much almost say that that's, that's almost like the sophisticates explanation of what VC does, right? Is their job is to uh, go to, I don't know, gambling, so I'm going to mess this up, but to go to the roulette table and put a bet on every single square or as many squares as possible and just hope that one of them pays off, right? Now it's a little more, that's kind of a bad way of putting it, but they identify a hot, hot, whatever, they identify a hot area and they try to make sure that they are following an investment scheme that says invest in a lot of these things because if you get a 300 even 200 return on one one or two of these, then it makes up for every other thing, right? So to the, for them, their model matches, or it would seem to match exactly this fail a lot sort of thing. Now that, that said, you have worked in the belly of the VC world a lot. And like, if you were to bring your dimming friend to modern day tech VCs, like what would he like? What would he dislike? Like, what do you, well, let, let me put it another way. I'm trying to not make it not negative, but like, what do you think he would learn that he would find valuable yeah, from how yeah. tech VC is run nowadays? You know, I don't like VCs in general for lots of lots and lots of reasons. And, you know, I told you, I put a book on hold that cause I'm working on a new book that about like, will really tell a story. It, it It's a story. I've said this to you, um, but, but I don't really want to talk about it too much other than um, I'm going to have to put a kill switch on it so that my wife will publish it the day after I die. Because it will piss off like sure. benchmark capital, Peter Fenton. I mean, I'll go through the list, right? Okay, but anyway, we'll save that for another day. I, you know, as much as I, it pains me. This is a great. This is why I love doing these things with you, my friend. Um, it pains me to say I think he would like the VC model because one, 
at Demi's core, he was a statistics guy. Mm. He loved math, numbers, and probabilities, right? And like, you know, and a big part of his work was statistical analysis or statistical process control. Or, I mean, he's even he even sort of came up with um, his own variants of least squares. Has been published by you know famous scientists and all. But um, so I mean that, that model of probability. It, it you know the thing about VCs, a lot of them come from a hedge fund mentality. Right. Which, you know, and, and sort of like instead of getting deep into quantitative analysis, which I wouldn't be qualified to do other than sort of cocktail party version. But but if we talk about it from my experience, it is you'll, they'll pick a hot area. They do spend a fair amount of time. You know what I've always been ter- you know heard and I believe this is seed investments go to the founders it's a belief system in the founders, you know, they take Adam Jacob, right? Like in the system initiative, I think it's going to be great, but like he had no problem getting funding because it's like know, a known I quantity. Mean, VC, yeah. Yeah. These people I know, you know, so that's, so that's sort of, it's like, it's way. like but if then, you were inventing a new cut of meat from a cow, you'd be like, I know this is going to work out. We've got a lot of experience. This is a proven yeah. investment in new meat technology. I'm going to say I didn't get that one, but okay. Um, the, but the thing was that, that like, okay, so that's really, so let's, let's put a little sophistication and they don't just sort of walk around going, Hey, there's 2 million. Here's 2 million. They literally sort of play this game. They do a lot of advisement. They have advisors. I've been an advisor for some of them um, at times. And, but then they do do this sort of let let's, and again, I'm, I'm over, oversimplifying. Let's pick 10. We'll give each 10, 2 million. And again, but people are like, Hey, there's seed. There's a, no, I'm just making it incredibly simple. Um, so they're going to invest like $20 million. And the point is with enough care and feeding and enough sort of tapping on the shoulder, go a little left here, go a little right here. They believe and they do hope they can get two of those that may pay out at $600 million and make a billion on a $20 million investment. That's hedge. That's literally that's basically doing some sort of math around all the data. Right. And, and for people like me, they don't make sense. You know what I mean? When I go to them with a great idea or I'm helping a startup and they're like, yeah, we're going to pass. But I don't know their math. Right. And, and, but, but yeah, no, I think, I think in some ways, um, and you know, even like if I look at the, the tenets of, of what, um, what Deming taught and thought about. He really talked about systems thinking. Um, He talked about sort of like what we could say is epistemology, but it's the theory of knowledge, making sure that you sort of, how do you know what you know? I think VCs are good at definitely that, right? They do do a lot of sort of, do we really know this space? Let me, uh, you know, there's certain people in Silicon Valley, you know, our good friend, Mike Dvorkin, like, he advises a lot of, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He advises a lot of uh, VCs. Um, so they really do a lot of the, how do we know what we think we know? Um, I think they're incredibly good at the third tenet that Deming talks about, which is um, theory of variation or, you know, um, you know, the understanding variation, which really is analytical statistics, which is basically, you know, running the numbers. Um I, you know, the, the one I question, which is the fourth, which is uh, understanding of psychology, in some ways they fail miserably. And so I'm wondering, and I know I'm going really deep here, but you, you hit me at a question that sort of I'm struggling with because 
if the answer is Deming would like him, I would hate that because <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, but um, but I, I think that the negative of VCs is uh, a good friend of mine said that one time that VCs, and I don't want to get him in trouble. He'll know who he is because um, he might still be looking for I See, I'm too old. I, I don't care if I piss off VCs. In fact, I want to piss them off at this point in my life because I'm, I'm going to be 65 this year and I'm not taking any money from them for the rest of my life. Um, but he says that um, they act like they're in the in the in the boat with you, you know. Um, but they're literally on the side of the river with a megaphone. Come on, go faster, <laughs> you know. And you know, and and so I think from that point. Um, but and and I and I will say as much as I dislike them, there are some that like when they do that, we're going to spray ten, and they they you know they focus on the two that are going to win. Oh, there's a fair amount of them that when they realize, in fact, Docker was that story. Docker basically was dot cloud. They turned out to be one of the eight at one point. Because dot cloud was like fourth in a three horse race, Heroku, um, engine yard. And I, I don't know who else was there, but like dot cloud was like, nobody had heard of them. Right. Um, and they had gotten like $10 million. And again, like, don't like document my numbers, but they had gotten like 10 million. They'd burned like five or six of it on dot cloud. And in general, and again, this is my literary licensed version of this story, but it is reasonably accurate because I was sort of in the mix of it. You know, I was talking to Solomon when he was at dot cloud, when he was trying to think about how he could turn the technology. And so Solomon being as brilliant as he was realized that there was a play to take the technology that Heroku and Engine Yard and Dot Cloud was using, which were containers. Nobody else, it was only unicorns that could understand how containers worked. What if he could commoditize it to be an open source project where everybody could use containers? And so, so but they were literally at that point, you know, in my words, left for dead. And again, Solomon, if you listen, you can argue with me, and I'd love to have that debate. But they were left for dead, and it was Solomon who wouldn't give up to his, you know, to his credit, reinvented himself, went out and started having these weekly things out in Silicon Valley where this thing blew up out of nowhere. And you were talking about ease of use. I remember my good friend Stephen Nelson Smith wrote a book called Test Driven Development with Chef. And in one of the later chapters, he talked about how you could use containers before Docker existed to go ahead and do scalable testing in a container environment. And I thought, oh, my God, I got to find out how to do this. And I wasted three or four nights of my life. You know, I, I have like a day job. I have a family. I do some reading. And then I put some things on the fourth thing before I go to bed. So I was literally my fourth list of things was trying to get these containers where I had to create my own kernel on Amazon and and, you know, and, and I was like, because, I mean, God bless Stephen No Smith. He didn't say how to do it in his book. And I gave up. <laughs> Eight months later, a friend tells me about this Docker project and how I should call Solomon. I call Solomon. He gives me early access to the Docker. It's not even, they're not even sure they're going to create a company yet from Docker. And I get access to the repo. And in like, four minutes, I have a container up and running. So I think, I think what you're pointing out, I mean, tell me if, if this this is off, but my, my point was is that that they they originally it, was, it wasn't for his perseverance and then hitting this wave, 
that they became a new round of the next exactly. Ten. And, and so I, it sounds like like what the prescription. The, the, one of the issues is pulling out too early, which to a certain extent is fine for uh, a good enough investment strategy, right? Like in our own person. Well, I don't know about you, but all the personal investment advice I always hear is that like, if you have a long-term focus, you don't really need to worry about, you know, ups and downs of things, right? Just have like a constant steady, like investment and stuff. Now that doesn't exactly go over to the high flying world of, of, uh, of tech startups, but it's almost like the situation you're pointing out is, well, if the VCs had just like paid attention for a year or so more, it would have been fine, which, which it was right. And so like, Maybe there's something, I mean, and so that brings the question back to, uh, yeah. to, to dimming is like, what is the dimming formula for just like, yeah, well, fuck this, shut it down. <laughs> right. Like, like when, when does he like say it's time to stop? Like, because that is, it's almost like the, it's built into the VC model is, um, not succumbing like the negative way of this, like if, if the yeah. negative way yeah. of what I'm saying is called the fallacy of what is it sunk the sunk whatnot fallacy the sunk cost right fallacy. right which yeah, which yeah, yeah. the yeah, sunk no, cost fallacy no. is that like you're not going to spend your way out of a hole like you want to cut your losses as soon as possible but that's well, also especially for innovation I, I don't know like I don't know I don't know the model yeah no, I, for it. Yeah, no I, I'm glad this is like awesome because I'm thinking about them in ways I like never been challenged to think about um so the area that I kept, like I was struggling, which was his understanding psychology, which is the fourth lens, system thinking, um, theory of knowledge, understanding variation. And then the fourth lens is understanding psychology, which is motivation, bias. Yeah. And one of the areas, so, and I think this ties to your question about when would he say shut it down is he would take, and he would combine all four of those together. So we would never look at one in isolation. So I think one of the blind spots that VCs have, and we see this, is they, they in some ways they're ruthless in the in the fact that like I'm gonna sort of I'm gonna you know cull all ten but I'm gonna find the couple that are gonna just rocket ship and at some point I'm gonna tell those guys you know cut bait. There is a middle story here and it's the when they fall in love with the founder. All right. You know and, and these some of these founders are just people you know all right I, I you know don't want to piss off like the chef folk. But Adam Jacob is a beautiful, beautiful human being. And I could, and, and Chef, Chef either should have been. So, one of the things you see here now, which is sort of interesting, is a little bit of ruthlessness, or maybe ruthless, is they're forcing companies to sell because the economics are different, right? Mm. Like, like, like a company like Chef and Puppet and those companies, I think the VCs fell in love with. I know on the Chef side, they, 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 they loved that. They loved him. And he's an easy guy to love. Right. Um, and and they let him just go way too long. And, and you know, and they they you know, I won't say I know this or I don't know this, but they turned down some really good deals. I know Puppet turned down some monster deals. Right. And and today you're seeing the VCs being very more economical where they're literally going to some of their investments and saying, I, we need you to sell this company. Now. No, no. But we got give us. No, no. I Because. The the model of let the sort of eight just wither 
you know, is is a little dangerous uh, because they're still out there. You're still giving them their time. You probably could bucket eight more. Again, I, I'm using very loose math here. <laughs> but like if what we saw there is during the, that sort of decade that me and you, you know, remember we started podcasting talking about the big five and the new big five. Sure. You know? like, yeah. like if we go back and some of the stuff we were talking about, it was the beginning of like enterprise dealing with open source project, the Nagios, the Zenos, the living go Hyperic. And we had some great conversations back then. But a lot of those companies that had so much promise took a whole decade and they and they did incredible things for commerce. You know, companies like Uber and Airbnb, I mean they were running stuff like either Chef or Puppet or you know some variant of that. But financially they just got they nobody ever pulled the Andor cord on them, and I think there was a blind spot there in that I think in some cases the founders are so charismatic and so likable and lovable that again, this is sort of my being very literary here, but um I think there's a middle ground so i, I going back to the deming question i deming believed that people enjoy were were um they were they 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 were supposed to have joy in work and he like he that was a critical lens in the four lenses he talked about like that. if he went into ford he'd want to make sure that people you know everywhere along the way um there's a great video that like, i know bounce all over you want to watch a great video do a google search on uh, steve jobs and joseph Duran, and you you'll hear jobs talk about Duran in a way that like very much like this they, you know, they, they really believed that, like, and it was for productivity. Like, you had people that enjoyed their work. So I think, but the other thing is they were pragmatic. And by the way, in my book, I decouple what pragmatic really means. It comes from the first American philosophy called pragmatism that was invented in the U.S. Oh, boy. You know, which would. Yeah, yeah. Is that, but was I mean, that Popper? I it, forget it, who came up with that, but like, man, that missed. No, it was a, it was a, you know, so the, the, the book that Deming sort of like sort of learned from was a book by a guy named C.I. Lewis. Oh, yeah, that's the one. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't the original. I actually have the story of the original founder of, of Pragmatism, which is a, he was a ne'er do well, ugly, terrible human, but he literally <laughs> created this brilliant way of. Sounds thinking, like all philosophers. Yeah, he simply we simply call it uh, pragmatism, but like there's a lot more to it, uh, or pragmatic we say. Um, so, but Deming would be pragmatic. You know, there's a point of which you have to look at something, and so you know, again, I'm challenged to say, I think Deming would approve of the venture capital ecosystem, even with all this sort of, you know, I'll, I'll say another friend, that same friend who told me that they're like, they're not in the boat, they're on the side of the river, also said most venture capitalists would not breathe oxygen if they didn't believe there was a way to make money off of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is, is I mean, speaking of passion in your work, you have to be passionate about making money <laughs> to, to, to be in the money-making business. That, like that they are, yeah. boy. Well, yeah. You, you know, you're bringing, we, we, have, a, uh, we have a famous... Um, I don't know the literary term for this dichotomy is the wrong thing, but, a, but a character pairing in our world, the old, uh, you know, the right. old, the old, uh, Scotty and Spock thing, right. Uh, of, of those. Two I, people. I and like I, and what would you call that? That's an interesting idea. Yeah, there, there's, there's like a, it's, it's a, it's a literary device. That's a uh, two characters. There's gotta be, I should, uh, well, 
I was going to say I'm an, I, I'm an English major, but I'm a minor. I didn't take the last three hours, and maybe they covered this in that last three hours. Oh, so, in those last couple hours. So I'll see. But, you know, in your description of this analytical nature and this passion and both with dimming and both with VCs, like um, there's almost this thing that both of them have uh, where let's just call it like intuition or vibes or feelings, right? Where you, you've got to balance those things out, right? Like you can't just, you can't just be like, you know, like you see pictures of dimming and you're like, Whoa, that guy, I bet he like really likes to balance his checkbook. Right. Like very numbers and, and, and <laughs> analytics driven and everything. But then as you cover like a lot in your book and other things, like there's actually this whole like squishy center, like touchy feely. You should be happy in your work side. Right. And so and that's how, yeah. I, I mean, you, you know, like like right. like uh, it's not just checkbook balancing. You, you also decide what, what color I mean, you he, want the cover just, of your checkbook to be. He, we would say that squishy feely actually creates productivity. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. Right? But, no. And, and to the point that I'm making, uh, it's hard to even find words that aren't cynical about what squishy feely is. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah, humane, right. perhaps. Right. <laughs> but anyways, uh, it kind of brings up this thing that like, I think, I think in the, in the, the DevOps world and we could, we could joke about whatever we call it nowadays, We've, we've, and even in the agile world, all the way back to XP and probably back to the rational unified process. And I would have to imagine with punch cards, there's always been this desire to like align with business. And I think a lot of DevOps stuff has been doing a good job aligning Scotty with Spock, but like, I don't know how we're going to align Spock with Kirk. Like Kirk is like the business side who's like entirely passion driven, right? And goes off of intuition, has like, an insane overconfidence in himself that actually pays off most of the time. Maybe I don't know star original star Trek well enough to know that if he's always making gambles and then his staff has to like make the shit work. Like, so that I, I'll have to figure that out, but like, it's almost like there's this other pairing that needs to be introduced as a metaphor of like, Oh, well, if you want to align with the business, you got to work with this guy or, you know, this person and they, as we were just kind of talking about, they have this entirely different modus operandi, right? And, you know, the the notion that you could be both statistical driven, but then also like, here's, I mean, there's a bit of like funniness of like, here's my analysis of the psychological tools we should use, right? <laughs> like to break it down to that, but yeah. like, but then all, but you, there's this interplay that I think is hard to even talk about of like, you lose track after some time, but like, it, I think, I don't know, what would Deming say to this notion of like, at some point, all you have is intuition. And that's like the er thing that kicks off all this yeah. other stuff. And like, to, to, to bring up one of my other old framings, right? Like, I remember the last time I got the chance to talk with like a big uh, lean manufacturing expert who just given a great talk in Detroit. Like the only question I had in my mind, because he went over the whole history, of course, of, you know, all the names, but the, the Toyota people is like, I was like, yeah, but who decided to like go from looms to cars. Like at some point there's not really an analysis. You're just, the sun was just like looms suck. Cars are cool. Right. And so like, mm -hmm. like how do you, how do you make this interplay between like that, that passion and just like well, insight and everything. And then like, Oh, but now we got to bring up the spreadsheets and now we got to like, So the first question. Yeah. So the first question that you proposed, again, I love this. Um, 
is, I guess the thing I thought about as you were talking about this is, does Spock really need to align with Kirk, right? Um, because if Kirk, because I mean, like, I don't know if we talked about before we were on air or on air, because we talked about a lot of cool stuff, is, you know, I've been writing about the parallel between um, this guy called Jeff Wilkie at Amazon, who literally was, you know, Jeff Bezos when Wilkie retired, and this guy's in my book as well. So um, he, you know, he said he was the most important person that ever worked at Amazon. He created the fulfillment center. He was a lean guy. He was in a Six Sigma lean, and 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 so Bezos was definitely Captain Kirk in this scenario. Like he had the the intuition, the the the, the risk taking. And he was smart enough to know that he needed a Spock and he hired Wilkie. And, like, and the thing that didn't make it in my book, which now I'm writing some stories about, the same thing happened at Apple. So Bezos knew that the world was changing. Like it wasn't a B2B. It was this whole new way. And he knew he didn't know. It's the same way that's, that Kirk relies on Spock. You had, you had Steve Jobs who, you know, after they sort of re, you know, so they brought Jobs back in, he knew that something was going on and he brought in Tim Cook, who's now the CEO. And Tim Cook, actually, I'm a big time Auburn fan. I live in Auburn. Like, so I, Tim Cook, hey. But like, um, he was at a, he was at a, at the football game. I didn't, I almost got to shake his hand, but he comes to Auburn, Alabama games. But anyway, I digress. Um, but Tim Cook was the Jeff Wilkie of, as like, he came in and he came out of MIT. He was a Six Sigma guy. And so in some ways, those risk takers, those incredible egos who have the intuition to say, you know what, we're going to do this. It works because they have a Spock. And vice versa. Right. And they're smart enough to know when to ask Spock. Like, they're, they're, they know... There and, and some of it's luck, some of it's intuition. They can make the, some decisions they'll make without asking Spock, but they'll. But the critical ones, and maybe it's luck, or maybe it's brilliance, or it's definitely both. They, that's when they ask Spock, and like I think again, the I do cover. I had to cut the Jim Cook stories out of my Deming book because I had to cut out about fifteen stories. Which, by the way, I've got another book coming out in about four months, which is all the cutting room floor stories, it's just going to be called profound stories. So that's going to be fun. You'd call it and, like and a beyond it. profound. That, that'd be fantastic. No, I just call it from the cutting room floor. Cause it's basically sure, sure. literally my editor reviewers said, why is this story in here? It's a great story, but like it doesn't sort of follow the arc Ugh, of editors. The what do they know? Editor. <laughs> you know what? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, let me do a shout out. Um, Leah Brown and uh, Anna Novak at IT Revolution. If you're going to publish a book, they are incredible. Yeah. I mean, and I, I've been around the block on a lot of stuff. And I can tell you this experience of doing, I've done like, I think this is the fourth book I've done for IT Revolution. And this is the first one I did sort of by myself. And I didn't realize what a great job they do and the care and the passion that they put into it. So um, you know, there was some battles. There was one story that I didn't want to cut out. It was my, you know, and they, they, John, you can keep it if you want. <laughs> but, but the point is, uh, going back to your question, I'm not sure that. So here's the thing. I think here's the answer. And I don't know how I'll tie it back to Deming is the problem that we've had with companies like Docker and let's just say, use Docker as the example. So they don't offend any 
I don't mind offending Docker, <laughs> but um, is Docker was just a Spock, right? At the end of the day, even even their CEO really was didn't really have, you know, even though Solomon would get up and say, oh, you know, I brought in Ben Gala because I needed a CEO. The truth is, um, you know, Docker, my my quote that will be in this other book, if you're like, how many books does this guy work on? It's a book that's 75% done, and I put it on the shelf because I'm I'm writing what will be my greatest book ever right now. But in that book, my one of the book that's on the shelf, is Docker couldn't have succeeded with Solomon, uh, but it couldn't succeed without him. Oh, and that's basically if you put Spock in charge of the enterprise, I think that's what you have. You have a guy that's calculating. Um, you know, he sort of works by technical intuition. You know, technical sort of like this instruction goes after that. You connect this database to this. You do that. Uh, whereas a guy like, um, you know, uh, you know, like um, Je- Jeff Bezos, you know, and Jeff Bezos was a quant too. So I'm not taking away any way from his analytical skills, but, uh, but Steve Jobs is probably a better example, right? Like, you know, Steve Jobs was like this brilliant intuition uh, innovator, but he needed, uh, he needed Tim Cook to, to be able to create distribution. So that all these brilliant, all these computers that everybody wanted would have never gotten to all these people. If you didn't bring in a genius supply chain person, yeah, you know, there, I I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a uh, there's a, I think was it the best? One doesn't like to categorize people they like, but I think it was probably the best talk at this past year's Monktoberfest uh, from Anil, and he uh, he works at a, a, a English VC firm, Crane or something, uh, and he has a lot of open source investments, and so he gave a talk that was. Is that- and he, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, and he gave me one of the best reviews of my book, and I didn't even know he knew I wrote a book. So anyway, I, and I, I've loved him for years anyway. But go ahead. So, yeah. so his his talk, and and to ruin his punchline, he doesn't offer a solution. He's just describing the problem. But uh, he's like, I invest. You know, let me tell you how VCs work. Which I just stole his explanation for our conversation earlier. So, and then here comes open source people. And we need to get a 300x return on them. And what a lot of, what a lot of, and he's just like, hey, I'm just, here we are. We're in Portland, Maine with all the red monkeys. Because it will just magically happen. And, 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 yes. and I think, I think the, like I said, he doesn't really offer a concrete solution, but I think the major insight of his talk is that and and it's like all great insights it's obvious like what's the phrase you must know this like all common sense is uncommon whatever uh well that's that's mark twain's like there's nothing common about there you go and and so he's like the point that he makes over and over again is like we are investing in businesses and if you start a business the business of business is a business right a business exists to like make money and run a business so like when you're building a business you're building a business, not an open source project, not a piece of software. Like, don't do that at all. And so, like, it it, it comes to this thing of like, yeah, the, the issue with a lot of Kirk thinking and even Scotty think. I mean, sorry, a lot a lot of Kirk thinking and and I don't know, all three of these is like, yes, but well, Kirk or Scotty is actually the that's the original sort of metaphor from John. Exactly. Osborne's right, 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 right. And and so I think right. I think maybe what Spock is doing here 
in our like two two old guys making Star Trek analogies is gonna go off the rails at some point. Kids who are listening, like what's Star Trek? But but like like you can have a Kirk who's just like wildly passionate about the business. They're following their intuitions, you know, and and that could be in kind of more of the quiet artistic way of a Steve Jobs or the you know, glamorous, take no prisoner ways of like a, a, a Bezos or whatever. That's a mischaracterization, but just like over the top, like big ambition. Um, but also you just need someone who like is going to run the business <laughs> and, and make sure that there's a business, that there's a way of making money. And like definitely on on the uh, the Scotty side, the the IT side, where it's just like, yeah, we got to make money. Like that's like we always need to be focused on on how the business is operating. I sort of lost track of my point there. Uh, but- no, 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 there's another set of good points. I mean, like, I mean, first off, I think maybe you and you and I will write it, but like that, the last decade is an interesting story. Yeah, for sure. Right. Definitely, you'd see Neil's. It, it like it was an incredible experiment that had insane byproduct in one side, which is you don't get Uber, you don't get Airbnb, you don't get, go down the list. They do not exist. And in fact, Amazon couldn't be Amazon if they didn't use open source. And, right. It's, you know, it's, I mean, it's almost like people talk about the, there's even an acronym that all, all the, all the, the smarty West coast libertarian tech people use. What is it? The zero interest phenomena age or something like where, where, yeah, 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 and, yeah. Like, uh, but what you're highlighting, money is free. what you're highlighting is there's there's money. also the the zero cost so- infrastructure software effect. We're like, right. So there was the benefit of what came out of that decade. You know, starting with like Chef and Puppet and CF Engine. I mean, Facebook was like, again, like no. From an infrastructure operations person, I can say this and and be willing to get punched in the face from somebody from Facebook. But CF Engine helped build Facebook, right? Um, and, you know, so so on that side of the world, look at what we got. It was a, It's amazing where we're at right now. And you could argue the AI stuff is a, fa- this, a lot of that fabric. And that's another question I'd like to ponder on another podcast. But on the left-hand side, the businesses were abysmal. People were just giving money away. To think about all the graveyard companies that got billions of dollars of investment money had um, insane evaluations. I mean, insane evaluations, and none of them were making money. I mean, even even um, Nasira, right? The, the the guys that sort of theoretically could argue created software-defined networking changed networking. Now the question is, was that a mistake or not? Um, when they got acquired again, I'm, I'm using you know botchical loop sort of explanations. So like, if you want to yell at me, please, and let's have a conversation. But is they only had, from my understanding, five customers. Only one of them was actually really a commercial customer because I know who they were. They were Shearing Plow um, in, uh, in, in 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 Amsterdam, and and my friend was one of the earliest adopters of um, Martin Casado's company. And they sold for like $1.2 billion to VMware. That's all public. So, and, and that was the beginning of the decade. <laughs> um, you know, so that, that decade was basically, and we're seeing the, the, the you know, what did they say? The, the chickens are coming to roost or whatever that saying is. 
we're seeing that now. Like now there were, you know, the, the darlings are actually really having to defend themselves. And like, if you didn't make it over the hump, like a data dog or a, or a page of duty, and you didn't get the IPO during that period, um, um, you, you know, you, you, you're, um, you know, you're being, your feet are being held to the fire. I mean, um, you know, look, look at some of the amazing products that in the last half of the, the last decade who are now, you know, like really teetering, like, yeah. And, and that's, know. that's also why I like so, the, the, that's, it's like, you know, that's what, that's why the idea of being like Google always annoys me. It's just like, well, how about all these other, you know, all these other people who are like Google and now we're like, Oh wait, that business is actually kind of crazy. Right. So like there, there's a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, can you have every time I read an article about how great Google's development tools are, I'm, I'm always like caught in a causal causality, like vortex where I'm like, well, are they able to do all of this because they just have billions of dollars in advertising or do they do this? And that means they can now do billions of dollars in advertising, right? Like, well, and but it, it, yeah. to, 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 I have, I have one final question. Uh, to, but I want to say yeah. one thing is that it goes back to the CTO, which is like, we want to be more like Google and we need to do more with less. The major difference was from what I can see is the, the cloud Titans did more with more. Right. They, yeah, yeah. They, they paid the needed to pay when when the, the famous stories when the guy who uh, wrote Envoy and I, I'm terrible at names was going to leave and create a startup um, based on Envoy had term sheet and all. Um, Lyft basically offered him like crazy, crazy money to stay. Right. Like, you know, you know, like, hey, oh, no, you know, HR says we can't pay you that much. They knew how important Envoy was. And, and we all know how important Envoy is, you know, with the service. And I, I think, I, you know, that goes that goes back to a point you were making earlier of and and I haven't thought this in a long time because I haven't had to. But like when when people say they want to be a software company, then it's like you've got it. You've got it. You've got to like reach, reach back a into a box and like right. blow dust off of a book and be like, here, read this first. Yeah. This, this is this is That's how right. to be a software company one hundred and one. I remember reading this a while ago, and like Look, your three hours that you missed in your um, your uh, literature in English lit, lit degree. Right? <laughs> they just, you know, I don't need that. Session. It's just like no, no, no. There's a lot of things different about being a software company. Well, so here's here's the last thing I wanted to ask is uh, I, you know, I think this might have been a couple of years ago, but I learned that you were like big in the like, like maybe late seventies, eighties punk scene or in the, in the New York, Long Island area, which is fascinating. And so like, I drank gin with uh, Deborah Harris. Exactly. On on the street at night before they were even close to being the Blondie. And, and, and so I thought we would play something fun with, with, I think you have perhaps, there's probably other people since there's what, 5 billion people in the world, but I'm going to say you're one of only maybe, five to 20 people who have both experience with that scene and a profound understanding of dimming. Maybe the only person uh, you, you, you know, all the dimming people. A, a really short list on so, so let's so. say, I tell, you I tell you one that I know it is a really short list of is somebody who drank gin with Deborah Harry and actually is now playing with pie torch. But anyway, so, right. so let's, let's say, let's say for whatever reason, uh, dimming has been asked to optimize the uh, the the music industry 
with this this hot new thing that's coming up in in the in the New York area, kind of like whatever that that punk Deborah Harry like Talking Heads that whole scene is, and and some VCs come to them and they're like, we got this crazy idea, we're gonna buy up a lot of this stuff and invest in it, and we need some way of improving the process and making sure that we have good returns, not only good returns, but we want to make sure that these bands like keep producing good product. We want to optimize the, the, the factory of, of how the, this is coming out and everything around it. And so, and the CEO of this investment firm is like, I'm going to move down to your basement next to the washing machines. I'm going to be the number one person you're consulting with. I'm not going to just send my staff, but I'm going to hire you to help me figure that out. Like, What's what's Dimming going to discover in the yeah. advice he's going to give? Anticlimactic answer is <laughs> Dimming didn't suffer fools well, and he would basically, if I can imitate his voice, he would say, "Why are you bothering me with this question, Mister Michael Corte?" <laughs> I don't know. I, I, honestly, I think you know. Again, back to his pragmatism, and uh, he, um, you know, I, I think. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, again, if, if he had to sit in and he was forced to be brought in by a large, you know, uh, capital or somebody and sort of think about the problem. And he probably, if I, if, you know, one of these days I want to go to Library of Congress and apparently there's a whole city block wall of his papers Oof. and napkin writing. And, um, so he probably, he might've been. Well, well let, let me, let large. me take one more. Sw- let me narrow it down. Right. Let's say, okay. Let's say there is, no, we have to take a little bit of literary license here, or or maybe not. Let's say that uh, there is a I don't even know what it would be called a trade association in in the New York area. Ah, okay. you, you are. This is why you're so good. And this and this Go trade ahead, association yeah. is interested in uh, hospitality, hotels, clubs, bars, maybe even some catering people. And they they've hired up dimming, and they're like, we barely we we uh, we barely made it through that disco stuff, or maybe disco was great, but then all of a sudden we got this. Yeah, no, I got it. I got the answer. I, I I totally have. So how do we optimize this business for for our yeah, interest? Yeah. Well, so if you read out of the crisis, which was his first real, you know, his for his book for the, a general audience, so all his other books are very sort of like statistics and math. Um, he sounds like a communist. Um, so what, and, and, and to, to, to sort of take to answer your question, I'm going to say basically what he said when he went to, so what happened was through a sort of, after we had won the war, there was an effort to rebuild Japan in so many ways. And at some point, Dr. Deming came in there. You know, the, the easy narrative is MacArthur sent them there, but it, it, you know, in my book, I go through the real, real sort of threads that how he gets there. And that's a fascinating story in itself. But, you know, how uh, some ex-wartime um, statisticians maneuvered and gamified getting him to come over. But there's a story that in 1950, he's in Mount Hokani, which is outside of uh, Tokyo, where 80% of the wealth, the place is still in ruins, right? You got to remember, like there's no confidence of anybody that Japan could ever rebuild itself. He sits in a room where they calculated years later that 80% of the controlling wealth is in this room. And he says, if you follow my methods, you will be successful in five years. And in five years, they outpaced Germany as being the number two economy uh, behind the United States. And 
the core of that message, it's online. And I, and I discussed in a book, but if you go to Deming Institute, they, there's a guy, uh, um, his last name's Hunter. He actually has the transcript. The core of the message is um, systems thinking, but cooperation. And what he tells everybody is, now is the time not to compete. Mm. It's to cooperate. And so he does all that stuff. He comes back to the United States. And during the 60s, he's nobody knows who he is, unless you're sort of deeply into statistics or um, you don't know anything about him. And he gets hired to do a bunch of work for, like, transportation companies. And he gets – he does a bunch – none of this is in my book because there's just only so much you can write about. But he gets brought in to help understand, like, you know, trucking and transportation and all that. Actually, he actually – defines or, or works on something called uh, jurometrics or it's statistics for jury selection. Like it's crazy, right? But anyway, he winds up getting brought into these companies to try to help them understand how they, and the thing he tells them is the same thing he tells Japan is don't compete with each other. And and this, this part of it is in new economics. Oh, uh, not, not, I'm sorry, in his book uh, out of the crisis. And he talks a lot about, how he needed to convince them that when you work against each other, because there were a lot of things going on about, and like I'm, I'm shaking my memory branches, but about regulations mm. and stuff like that. And he was saying, if you all work independently, you, this stuff will never get changed. So stop competing with each other, work together, and you will make change. And by that change, you'll all be incredibly professional so or successful. You know, which is basically what he was told to Japan is like, now's not the time to sort of recompete with each other. Like the only way out of this is work together is sort of like, don't think you're, you know, think about like everything you do, share with your, you know, don't even think of him as a competitor. And he told that. So I do now have the answer. And this is the brilliance of like why I love doing these podcasts with you is he, if he was brought in on the music scene or anything like that, he would basically tell them and he would sound like a communist you know, for good or bad or whatever, right? I mean, if you read Karl Marx's stuff, I'm not an expert. It's pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, about economics and economic theory. But the, the point is he would basically tell them, don't compete against each other, cooperate, and do cooperations. You know, it's, it's loosely based on uh, Jevons' paradox, right? Like the more you sort of cooperate or create common abstractions, the more value you get in the aggregate for, you know? And so, yeah, I think, I think um, there's already, you know, like he had, there is already at least two narratives I know of. One is what he did in Japan. Two is what he did in the sixties when nobody even knew who he was. I think they answer it. He would tell all the competitors, if we go back to the music industry, he would tell them, you know, stop competing with each other band together, and if you shared all your information and cooperated, you'd actually create more wealth in the commons. Yeah, and, and probably more sustainable and uh, um, all of that. Oh, yeah, it does, definitely more sustainable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Well, And then we'd all have purple hair right now <laughs> instead of just a small subset. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's, it's been exciting as always. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we got uh, almost a full 90 minutes uh, to, to discuss things, oh, which, wow. Wow. which is fantastic. But, John, you know, you've mentioned your book. Uh, where, where, uh, tell people where to go if they right. want to learn more about dimming or yourself. Right, here's what what do you want to hustle? Um, so, if you listen, the first, I don't, I don't know why I don't live here. I always like this when I do like ninety minute things. I'm like, how many people stayed, <laughs> right? And so, if you're still here at this point, the first ten people who contact Michael Cote 
uh, he will give me your name and will and I'll ask for your address and I will mail you a signed copy of my Oh, book. amazing. Well, my email address is uh, Cote at softwaredefinedtalk.com. So there you go. All right. Send Michael that. If you send him his, your address, he'll tell me who <laughs> the first 10 are. And I promise you, I will uh, I will mail you a signed copy of my demo. Yeah. And, and as always, if you want stickers, you can email uh, Brandon. You know what? Only two people made it this far. So like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be okay. I only, I'm going to only be out about 25. Exactly. Hours. Well, tell people the, uh, you know, you've got a, you got a whole, well, it's not new at this point, but you've got a whole site dedicated to your, uh, your, your doing. Yeah. So a couple of things, right? Um, if you put in the show notes, um, um, sort of my icon is Botchgloop. It's Botchgloop at gmail.com because I'm too lazy to get a real domain. Um, the I do have something called uh, profound-deming.com where I put my podcast. I have a, a, a profound podcast on Deming, right? So periodically get interesting people. But my book is um, Deming's Journey to Profound Knowledge. It's on Amazon. It's doing very well. There's uh, it's through IT Revolution, so we date. It's you know we are they are professional publishers. So there's an audio, Kindle, and and paperback version of it. And, uh, and you know, reach out to me. Um, I'm, I'm easy to find at botskalup at gmail dot com or my podcast. Or I'm on LinkedIn, John Willis Atlanta. I couldn't get botskalup, and but you know, I, I, these days I spend almost all my time from a social perspective on LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I lost the I somehow the 2FA from my Twitter account got fucked and uh I've emailed them twice. So I think I've inadvertently shut down my Twitter account just by virtue of uh yeah. I, I have no idea. What what a shame. Well, what's Twitter? <laughs> exactly. Well, it's been great as always, John. I'm sure I'll see you uh some sometime soon out there. Yeah, this summer I'm going to be in Europe a couple of times, right. so we'll definitely make sure. You'll be in Amsterdam for sure. I mean, you live Yes. In I'm I'm I uh, I often find myself here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'll be at Amsterdam DevOps Day. Yeah. Sure, so. Well, as always, this has been Software Defined Talk, we one of our interview episodes. If you want to get the show notes for this episode, uh, characteristically, I don't actually know what number it is. Uh, maybe I'll edit that in later, but you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com and just search for John Willis uh, and you can find this episode. And uh, as I always like to recommend to people, especially as, as John has uh, joked, you've listened this far. What I want you to do is every time you encounter someone with an iPhone, a computer, an iPad, take it, make sure you can log in, open up their podcast app, and subscribe to softwaredefinedtalk.com. And uh, they may or may not thank you later, but when you meet them again, just go share and make sure that they're still downloading it uh, so that they, they get the downloads. And with that- Michael, I got to say, yeah. I, I love that you know, we used to do this all the time back and back and back in the day, but I think you know you and- me and you and Damon, me and Damon, and me and you. I think I, I have more fun doing podcasts with you two guys than just about anybody else on the planet. So this is well, awesome. that that is very sweet of you to say, and also true in in both directions. So I appreciate. Oh, cool. it. All right. Well, with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.